whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat amongst his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, Put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you've finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know that they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerobesheth? Didn't a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks this, then say to him, Also, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance to the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. 
Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Father, we praise you for your word, and we pray for your assistance now as we look into it together. Please would you give us teachable, tender hearts. Please speak to us. Please warn us. Please encourage us. Please do so for your name's sake. Amen. Please take a seat. Well, it's lovely to be uh, with you again. You always give me a very warm welcome, so thank you for that. And uh, please do turn up T. Samuel chapter 11, uh, page 314, and we'll look at it together. Human beings are not fit to rule this world. I wonder what you make of that statement. Human beings are not fit to rule this world. I wonder if you bristle hearing those words. I wonder if that strikes you as silly, a silly thing to say. Or maybe you can see something of the truth of it. Uh, Our leaders' flaws are something that we we think about quite a lot. Uh, The uh, unending news story of Donald Trump's presidency keeps the idea in our minds all of the time. We see his attitude to women. We hear stories about links to Russia. We see him uh, weaken the alliance between the the Western nations. Uh, I read in the paper um, uh, about a, a nuclear weapons historian This man says that uh, since Donald Trump was elected, he's been repeatedly asked, are there any checks in place to prevent the president starting a nuclear war? Now, the whole point of the American military system is that in the heat of the moment, ultimately, you only want one person making the decision to use nuclear weapons or not. Uh, the commander-in-chief, the president's. It's not the moment to be having a committee meeting. So, are there checks on the president having authority to launch nukes? Yes, the historian said in the paper. There is a check. The election is the check. Don't elect someone to be president who you don't trust to have authority over nuclear weapons. We think a lot about the flaws of our leaders, don't we? Well, the chapter that we're looking at tonight is one of the most well-known in the Old Testament part of the Bible. It's infamous, really. And it shows us the shocking low points in King David's life. But what makes this passage so shocking is not that it's the low points of an immoral, corrupt leader. It's that it's the low points of a godly and faithful leader, the king of God's people. And it shows us something about ourselves that I think most of us don't want to hear. It does show us that human beings are not fit to rule this world. It's a passage that leaves us searching. It leaves us searching for someone who will share our humanity 
but he won't share our sin. It leaves us searching for the Lord Jesus. Let's have a look down together. It's uh, chapter 11, page 314. It follows on from the military victories of chapter 10. Chapter 10 shows us King David on top of the world, blessed by God, ruling his people, enjoying great success. But whilst King David seems safe from enemies out there, King David is not safe from the enemy in here. And let's look at this chapter in three sections. Let's look at the adultery, the murder, and then the bottom line. First of all, then, the adultery. And we're looking at verses one to five. Verse one, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. So David uh, sends out his commander, Joab. He sends out the army for Operation Rabbah. Now David has stayed behind in Jerusalem on previous occasions as well, but this time the passage emphasizes it. And it leads to a far worse defeat than could ever happen at Rabbah. Verse two. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. So whilst uh, his men face life or death on the battlefield, here's David lounging around in his silk pyjamas. He takes a stroll in the cool evening air on the roof and he catches a glimpse of a beautiful naked woman. Now there's no hint that the woman's behaviour is risque. She was probably in a private place. It's just the height of the palace roof makes it possible for him to have line of sight of her. Now David should have looked away in embarrassment, but far from turning his attention away, he turns his attention to her. Verse three, David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David learns her name. He learns about her family and he learns that she's married. But that doesn't put the brakes on. His interest has been provoked and things now happen very quickly. Verse four, then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. It's told very briefly, isn't it? Uh, There's very scant information here. We're not told anything about conversation or their feelings or anything like that, just the actions. And from our point of view, we're shell-shocked because this is seriously out of character for David. Almost everything that we've learned about him in 1 and 2 Samuel so far has been impressive. Yes, he's gathered a number of wives, which he shouldn't have done, but on the whole, he has been godly and faithful and brave and upright. And so this, this is a disaster. And the chapter really is a turning point in David's story. 
It's a little bit like the fall in Genesis chapter three. In the Garden of Eden, Eve saw something that seemed good. She desired it and she took it. And so here, David sees something that seems good and he desires it and he takes it. And in both stories, uh, desires are followed rather than God's word and it leads to disaster. It leaves us with lots of questions. You know, did, did David really intend to seduce her or just invite her around for a glass of wine? Did David persuade himself that, hey, with her husband away, she's going to be pretty lonely. It would be good to have her around, give her a bit of company. That would be kind. Did Bathsheba flirt with him? Or was it all coming from David? Did David pressure her? Did David force himself on her? Why did David do this? Was he under a lot of stress? Is this some kind of midlife crisis? We have lots of questions, but the focus really is just on the actions. The focus is on David being responsible. Now, lots of people in Sheffield, uh, maybe friends of yours at school or neighbours you live near, would say, well, come on, what's the problem here? You've got two healthy adults, they're attracted to each other. It's consensual, or at least it seems to be. Why shouldn't they have some fun together? Life is for living, sex is great. You've got a hot guy, you've got a hot girl. Why shouldn't they get together? Why are Christians so uptight? Why are Christians so wound up about sex? But verse five reminds us why sex is so precious. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. You see, sex is bound up with family life. Sex is the center of marriage. Marriage shows us something about God's love and God's faithfulness. Sex is how children come into the world. Family is where children are nurtured and protected It's where human flourishing happens. That's why sex is precious. That's why sex should be treasured. But all of that was very far from David's mind that night. Bathsheba says, I'm pregnant. That often happens when people have sex. And within marriage, it's wonderful. But for David here, it's a disaster. We've read Bathsheba had purified herself, meaning she was keeping the law of Moses. She was bathing after her monthly period. And the point being this, there's no doubt who the father is. And so the story moves on to part two, the murder. I'm looking at verses six to 25. Verse six, so David sent this word to Joab, his commander, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. Now at this point, what should David have done? Let me tell you. David should have met Uriah on his knees. David should have admitted everything. 
He should have begged for forgiveness, offered to do anything to make it right. He should have prayed to God for mercy. It would have been absolutely excruciating for David to have done that. Absolute agony. But it would have been the right thing to do. It would have been the safe thing to do before things got any worse. But of course, David doesn't do that and things get a whole lot worse. Verse seven. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Bit of chit-chat, David faking interest, nodding, just waiting for the moment that he can say, verse eight, go down to your house and wash your feet. David's covering his tracks. He's got this guy's wife pregnant. How can he weasel his way out of this? He can get them in bed together. Plausible deniability. That's what David will get. And most people will think, hey, the baby is Uriah's. So end of verse nine, he shakes Uriah's hand. He claps him on the shoulder. He sends him home with a present, a picnic hamper full of oysters and champagne to set the mood at home. But verse nine, Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. When David was told Uriah didn't go home, his heart rate rises, he fakes a smile, and David asks Uriah, haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, verse 11, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. And it's a heart-rending moment because you realize Uriah is a good guy. Uriah is taking the spiritual battle seriously. Uriah loves the Lord, he loves the kingdom, he loves his brothers in the army, he knows that they're risking their lives, he wants to stand with them, even when he's at home. He's a solid, faithful guy. And this is another chance for David to repent. David is confronted here with godliness, godliness that usually he is the one shining out. And David should be ashamed, he should be humbled, he should drop to his knees, he should tell all. But sin is blinding him and infecting him and conquering him. And so David, with a bead of sweat rolling down his face, he widens his fake smile and he says, verse 12, stay here one more day and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him And David made him drunk. Further sin from David. David's trying to undermine Uriah's principles. He's trying to undermine Uriah's steadfastness. But a drunk Uriah is better than a sober David. And in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He didn't go home. And at this point, David is desperate. Time has run out. Plan A has failed. 
Plan B has failed. That only leaves plan C. Plan C is the nuclear option. And David doesn't blink before pushing the button. Verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so that he'll be struck down and die. Now, this is an agonizing scene to think about. The wickedness of sending this letter by Uriah himself. You think, if only Uriah had lost the letter, if only he'd opened it and read it and destroyed it, he'd have been rescued, at least at this point. But he's Uriah. He's a godly guy. He loves his king. He'd have taken extra care to make sure that letter got to Joab. And he'd have felt proud he was asked to do it. It's an agonizing scene. So while Joab had the city under siege, verse 16, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Now, Joab is a gangster. He gets the order to whack someone, and he gets on with it, no questions asked. He's a dangerous man to be in debt to. I bet Joab kept that letter. And so the deed done, Joab sends a message to HQ. He prepares the messenger. Joab says, if when you tell the king he flies off the handle. If he yells, what the heck were you doing? Why did you get so close to the wall? Then end of verse 21, say to him, also your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. And so prepared, the messenger sets off. He arrives. He decides not to wait for David to blow his lid and he mentions Uriah's death straight away. He says, they overpowered us. We drove them back. They shot arrows. We lost some men but Uriah the Hittite is dead. Now just look at David's response. Verse 25. David told the messenger, say this to Joab. Don't let this upset ye. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. What a hard heart. Others have now died as well. And David's words are a show. It's a message to Joab and its meaning is clear. Report received, problem solved. Now it's worth us pausing at this point and dwelling on an important lesson You and I should fear sin. You and I should fear sin. Do you ever think of sin in that kind of way? That it's something to fear? If you read this uh, account in the paper, you'd be shaking your head. You'd be thinking, wow, there are some monsters out there. But we're not reading about one of the worst men in the world. We're reading about one of the best. And if great King David fell like this, 
it could happen to any of us. And I do hope you believe that. Sin starts small and it blinds. There is a frightening snowball effect in this chapter, isn't there? Sin escalates with horrifying speed and power. We should fear sin. There was a a respected pastor called Earl Wilson. Uh, By his late 40s, he was living a double life. He'd fallen into a pattern of sexual sin. Uh, In God's kindness, he found help. He repented, and later he wrote a book about his experience. He called the book Steering Clear, Avoiding the Slippery Slope to Moral Failure. We read this chapter about David. We think about others who have stumbled in similar ways. We find it hard to see how it happened. Earl Wilson says this, The answer is usually found in how one mistake leads to another with a disastrous cumulative effect. You and I need to fear sin. And you and I need to fight sin. How do you stop the snowball effect? You stop it early. You repent quickly. 1 Corinthians 6 says, flee sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 10 says, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. If David fell, anyone can. Well, let's finish the chapter. The adultery, the murder, the bottom line. Let me read 26 and 27. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Picture uh, David one night in his bathroom He's uh, looking at himself in the mirror and he says, it's over. It's over. No one's going to find out now and I'll take care of Bathsheba now and I'll take care of the boy as well. I'll make sure I do right by them. It's over. But it's not over. Because the most important person in this story, the one we've heard the least about, has been watching all along. You see, the bottom line, literally the bottom line of the chapter, is the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Sin starts small and it blinds. Sin had blinded David to the existence of God. Throughout this chapter, David literally behaves as if God is not there, as if God doesn't see him seduce Bathsheba, 
as if God doesn't see him manipulate Uriah, as if God doesn't see him murder Uriah. Sin has blinded David to the seriousness of his actions. Sin has blinded David to the reality of God's rule. And this incident is far from over. In chapter 12, we see the consequences begin to unfold and they're very serious indeed. And the question the Bible reader asks at this point is, is this it for God's kingdom? Is this it? Is this the end? You might remember back in chapter 7, God has given this wonderful promise, your throne will be established forever. And it's the gospel It's the the hope for this world. It's the only hope for this sin-spoiled world. But where does that promise stand now? Has God torn it up? Is it in the bin? Has David ruined it? Well, praise God, his promise stands. His promise stands because it's not based on sinful David. It's based on the son of David, the perfect and sinless son of David. Hebrews chapter 4 says this, we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he didn't sin. And this king, this king never takes from his people, he only gives. This king never lies to his people, he only blesses. And this king never damages his people, He only shepherds us all the days of our lives. This king is the son of David, descended from David and from the wife of Uriah, as Matthew chapter 1 puts it. And you shall call his name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Here is hope for the murderer. Here is hope for the adulterer because this king gives forgiveness and he gives a kingdom to anyone who turns from sin and trusts in his cross. Here is hope for the heartbroken. Here is hope for those pierced by the adultery of their spouses. His kingdom is a place where every tear will be wiped away. And his grace can bring great healing now in this life. As we finish, let me close with these words. If you had told me one year earlier when my husband's affair was uncovered that we would be together today, I would have laughed at you. If you had told me our marriage would be strong, I would have called you cruel. But that's exactly what God has brought about All is not ideal. He's far from a perfect husband and doubts and memories still invade me. But what we've learned about ourselves and about our Lord is priceless. Praise God who really does redeem dirty things and make them shine. Let me lead us in a prayer.
Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd help us to take appropriate warning from this passage. Teach us to fear sin. Teach us to flee sexual immorality. Teach us to take care lest we fall. But Father, we take heart from this passage as well. Thank you that your promise to David was not torn up at this stage because it wasn't based on him, but on the son of David. We praise you that we have Jesus as our king who was tempted in every way, yet did not sin. Thank you that he was named Jesus because he saves his people from their sins. And Heavenly Father, we put our hope in him. Amen.